or do, we, we have a local ministry partnership with Life Choices of Memphis. And if you've been here long enough, you know that we uh, try to consistently promote and emphasize the amazing ministry of Life Choices, where they take expecting mothers in our community and love them and lead them to make life-affirming choices, saving the lives of our precious babies, these unborn children. And so today we have the privilege of having a representative from Life Choices, and with it being Sanctity of Human Life Day, I'm going to allow Miss Stacy Mays from Life Choices to get up and share a little bit about their ministry and how you can partner with them. So this is Miss Stacy. Thank you. It's so great to be with you guys today. Um, I feel like I'm speaking to our family. You have partnered with us and supported us for so many years. And you guys have been so faithful with these bottles. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name is Stacy Mays, as Pastor Marcus said, and I've been at Life Choices for almost seven years. I'm the community relations director. And I I believe I think this every year, but I'm definitely thinking it this year, that the work we are doing is more important than ever. There is so much coming against us. There's so much in the world going against the unborn and going against women in unplanned or crisis pregnancies. And I say this truthfully and from my heart, that for a woman in our city in a crisis or unplanned pregnancy, we are the best option for her. Life Choices is the best option. And I want you to know that we are a ministry of the church and we are a ministry for the church. We are seeing clients from this zip code and all throughout the city. But I want to thank you. Thank you so much for being so faithful. You have truly held our arms up in times where we needed that extra encouragement and support. We have volunteers from this church. You've been faithful to financially support us. You have prayed for us. You have truly been an advocate for our ministry. So today, I just want to give you an update. I want to tell you that this past year, yes, this past crazy year, was an exceptional year for our ministry, believe it or not. The Lord brought thousands of clients through our doors, and the majority of those clients, let me tell you, they came more than once, and that's huge for us because we don't want our clients to just come one time, get a pregnancy test, ultrasound, counseling, and then leave and never see them again. We want that relationship. We want to walk with them throughout their entire pregnancy and beyond because, you see, we care for our clients not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And this is my favorite thing. I had this prepared for later on in my talk, but I'm going to share it right now because this is so amazing that this past year, the COVID year of craziness, we saw almost 100 clients come to know the Lord as their Savior. Amen. And, you know, I think about that client's life changing. We know that as believers, what a big deal this is. But please think about the baby that every client was expecting that made that decision. Think about that unborn child and the trajectory that that child's life has changed. And I think that that is the most amazing thing that we can do for that unborn child is to sit across from that mom and, yes, give her the services and the education she needs, but present the love of Christ so that her life and that child's life can be changed forever. 
A little bit about our services for those who might not know. All of our services are completely free for our clients, and we provide what she needs in a loving, non-judgmental environment. We provide free pregnancy tests, free ultrasounds, STI testing and treatment, and counseling. So most of our clients come to us for the pregnancy test and the ultrasound. Even if they're considering an abortion, they need to know that they are pregnant indeed, and they need to know how far along they are. And what we give them that they don't know they need is a session with a client advocate, and that's the counseling session. And that education is continued, that love and support, and that is where the gospel of Christ is presented. And just because these services are free does not mean they're subpar. We have a beautiful building just down the road. If you've never been on a tour or been by to see the facility, I would definitely invite you to come by. And our services are at a very, very high level, very, very professional. So on the client side of things this past year, we have seen many, many wonderful things happen that only the Lord could have ordained. Our clients coming to see us, our clients choosing life. We have the names, we have the names, the birth date, and all the information of almost 700 babies born because of our ministry this past year. (laughs) And we are thankful for every single one. We are praising God for that life, for that sweet life that he created. He is the author of all life. Now, more children were born throughout our ministry this year, but some of our clients, they move away. We lose touch with them. Their phone numbers change. But these are ones where we can look at the exact name, the date of birth, how much they weighed, and just praise God for them. We are so grateful for every woman who walked through our doors. I think about that and the significance of walking through our doors and not the doors of an abortion provider in town, where they would have a drastically different experience, drastically, drastically different. Also, we had babies placed for adoption this year. And for those who don't know, Life Choices is a licensed adoption agency in Mississippi and Tennessee. And let me tell you this, because your family, this is becoming more and more rare throughout our country. We are almost one of a kind in that we place every baby in a Christian home with a mother and a father. Unashamedly, we place every child through our adoption program in a loving Christian home with a mother and a father. And we are so thankful for those brave birth mothers who chose life for their child and then to sacrificially and lovingly place them for adoption with the loving family. Another aspect of our ministry you might not know about is that we offer a post-abortion Bible study. And we know that many women in our community of all ages are struggling from the shame, the guilt, and hurt of a former abortion. And we think that is very important for us as we talk about the blight of abortion, the terrifying atrocity that it is. We want any woman who has been down that road to know that the Lord loves them and is ready to offer grace and forgiveness and to walk in a relationship with them. And we have seen dozens of women come through that Bible study, and we know that many more in our community need it. It's led by women who know the pain of abortion, and I'm so thankful that we are able to see women go from the hurt, the guilt, the shame, even thinking that they committed the unforgivable sin, to walking in the freedom and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about one client story, if that's okay. I know you guys love to hear the client stories. That's always the favorite part. 
This is one of my favorite stories. Um, I have permission to share a story, and we actually did a video for those who were able to attend our virtual banquet in October. But um, Janae, she was doing great in life. She went to college. She's from a very large family, and kind of the role she took on in her family was the independent one. So she went to college she, in Nashville. She came back to Memphis, got her first apartment, had a great job working for the state. Things were going very, very well, according to her plan. We all know about our plans, right? <laughs> she had her plan, and things were going very well. She was even leading worship like these guys at her church every Sunday morning really, really well. Met a guy through social media, which is becoming more and more common <laughs> these days. They started dating, and then about this time last year, she found out she was pregnant. And like many of our clients, it was the worst possible time in her mind, the worst possible time. And what um, you need to know, what I've learned from our clients, is that when that happens, everything is blurred, the world is spinning, and the clock is ticking. She's not thinking like I'm thinking right now. It's not a rational, rational thought. And many of us have been in a situation similar to that, where the world is spinning, and you've got to make a decision, and it's got to happen fast. And also, there was a lot of shame and guilt. She's leading worship at her church, and her family does not need to find out. She is not the one who ever asks for help. She's not the one who messes up. She's on the clear and straight path. So she calls Planned Parenthood, and she said, I didn't want to have an abortion. I just wanted information. I wanted to know my options. So she calls Planned Parenthood to find out, I mean, what is an abortion? What do you do? How much does it cost? I know nothing about this. I did not plan on ever having to make this call. And before she knew it, she was making an appointment to go in and end her pregnancy. And again, her world is spinning. She's kind of going through the motions. She's not even really aware of what is happening. And she said she wasn't aware until the receptionist asked for her date of birth as she's making the appointment. She gives her date of birth, and then the receptionist says, oh, well, happy birthday. She didn't even realize it was her birthday. Again, her world is spinning. Everything's going down. And thankfully, the Lord used that. And immediately she thought, how can I make an appointment to end a life? She was aware that this was a baby in her womb. How can I make an appointment to end a life on a day that I was given life, that I was born? And guys, this is amazing. <laughs> I love this part. So Janae lives in apartments really close to one of our Life Choices locations. And she said that she hung up the phone. She hung up on the receptionist. And she ran through the doors of Life Choices. She ran through the doors, no appointment, nothing. She had seen our sign many times, had looked up, knew a little bit about what we do, knew that we could help her. She ran through the doors, and she got the information that she needed, but more importantly, she got the love and support because she could totally have a baby. She could totally do this. She just needed someone to sit down, pray with her, love her, listen to her, and make a plan. And after she had her baby this past year, I got to hold him and look at him and see this sweet, precious face, Trevante Jr., and praise God that she ran through our doors, that we were there for her. Amen. And that is, thank you, amen. And that is one of many client stories, I could go on and on and tell you, of God's redemption. Yes, for many of our clients, mistakes are made. They find themselves in hard situations because of choices that they've made that were sinful. But we know God is a God of redemption, and I've seen it over and over as he takes something terrible and dark and brings it into light and for his glory and for his honor. I want to thank you again. Thank you for your love. 
Thank you for your support. Thank you for partnering with us. Um, this is a battle. This is a spiritual battle. I hope that you will all get a bulletin insert. This is one of our sweet babies, baby Jaden, who was born because his mom came to Life Choices. But on the back is some very poignant and hard numbers and information. And we know that abortion is a blight on our world, on our nation, our state, our county, and our city here in our backyard. And there is something you can do. And your church is already doing so much. But individually, there is something you can do. Thank you. like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash about his chest. The hairs of his head were like, were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we're getting into the, the bulk of the vision here as John sees a vision of Jesus. And I think you're going to find that there's some very practical information in this passage of Scripture for you and me today is all Scripture is going to give us something very, very practical. And so as we look at verse 9, I just want to call to the attention what John says here in his greeting. This is what John says in the vision. He says, Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he was on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus because of the word of God. He had been exiled there. He had been banished to this island there in the Aegean Sea. And he was there because of his witness, because of his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I share with you this morning, uh, the first thing I want to point out to you is that John as identifying himself as a brother and a partner in the tribulation is that God's people must enter the kingdom of God through Many tribulations with patient endurance to the end. So John, again, identifying himself as a brother and a partner in the tribulation and, and calling us and all who believe in Jesus to the patient endurance that are in Jesus. When we look at the history of the church, when we really look at the history of the people of God, what we discover is that 
single generation of believer who has ever lived on the face of the earth, whether it be Old Testament saints or whether it be New Testament saints, nearly all of them have one thing in common. It's tribulation. It's difficulty. It's persecution. You see, what happened at the garden is that the enemy, the, the evil one, Satan, is he usurped man's authority and he became the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. He became the one who has authority of the kingdoms of this world. And ever since Satan took over and had authority in the kingdoms of this world, he has public enemy number one. And he has a big target on the back of every believer, everyone who has uh, chosen to follow God, everyone who has chosen to live their lives in a relationship with the one true God, they are targeted as specific direct objects of satanic wrath and persecution. And so that is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. You see, when I talk about the call to follow Jesus Christ, I want to be clear that the Bible paints a much different picture than what many churches today teach. This idea that it's easy believism and Jesus will fix all your problems and name and claim and health, wealth and prosperity and your best life now. And God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want you to be sick. And, and all of these things, God doesn't want you to have to go through hard times. And unfortunately, those are, those are all too common messages that are being delivered from pulpits all across this country. But here's the reality. The call to follow Jesus Christ is the call to come and die. The call to follow Jesus Christ is the call to share in his sufferings. It's the call to be hated by the world. It's the call to be persecuted for him. It's the call to enter into trials and tribulations. It's the call to remain faithful and overcome and endure to the end. Amen. That's the call to follow Jesus Christ. And here in the United States of America, unfortunately, because we up until this point, I think those things may be changing now. But up until this point, it didn't cost you a whole lot to become a Christian in this culture because we do have the religious liberty and the freedom. And thankful for those things that we have as far as religious liberty and freedom that we don't really understand what it means to be persecuted for becoming a Christian. We don't really understand what it means to be ostracized by our families or being fired from a job or, or God forbid, our villages being plundered and burned and people being killed and persecuted and imprisoned simply because they identify with Jesus Christ. You see, that is the reality that is being experienced by our brothers and sisters all over the world Amen. today, but just not here. And so in America, we just kind of have a different brand of Christianity. It just it doesn't really cost you that much. You can, you can come and make a profession of faith, and your life doesn't have to change that much. And I'm thankful for the freedom that we have, but I'm also understanding, and I want you to understand is that John identifies believers as those who are partners, who are brothers and sisters who share in suffering and who are going to enter into persecution and tribulation. I just want to give you a little bit of a sampling of some passages that reaffirm this because, again, this is not my opinion. This is what the Bible clearly says. So just look at this sampling as we talk about what it means to truly, to truly come to Jesus and to follow him. Acts 14, it says, speaking of Paul, when they had reached, excuse me, when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. And strengthening the souls of the disciples, they were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
For most believers in the early New Testament church, the minute that they trusted in Jesus Christ meant immediate tribulation, immediate persecution, immediate cost. And that's why Paul and the disciples had to continue to encourage the believers. Don't give up. Don't quit. This is the way that it must be. We enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. First Peter Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. I love this, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this is normal. Persecution, trial, tribulation, this should be normal in the life of the believer. Don't be surprised when these things come upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's that same word, apocalypsis, is the revelation. When his glory is revealed, we may rejoice But if we are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, this is just a sampling. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, then I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. James 5, 7 through 11. This is one of the most fascinating passages. It says, be patient again endurance. James is reminding the believers, he's saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the what? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against each other, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate. And merciful. What is James saying? He's saying, listen, when you get into these situations of suffering and persecution and tribulation for the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, he's saying, remember the prophets before you. Remember all of the saints before you because this is normal. This is the, the normal life that you have chosen by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be. These are promises. These are promises from God. Do you want to come follow me? Okay, it's going to cost you something. You're probably going to be hated by the world. You're probably going to lose friends over it. You may even lose your job. It's going to cost you maybe even your life in certain parts of the world. But you're going to be persecuted. This is a guarantee. This is a promise. Guys, this is the call of the gospel. This is the call of the scripture from beginning to end. And then, of course, Jesus said, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have what? You will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. As Jesus said, narrows the door and difficult is the way that leads to what? Eternal life. And only few will find it. Only few will find it. That's what John is communicating to us. Now, the next thing I want to share with you is this, and and we're just going to have to jump right into this because 
Not only are we guaranteed tribulation in general as believers, but again, I'm going to go ahead and, and share with you my perspective of what we must face as believers in what is called the great tribulation. Now, I want to, I want to go ahead and say something on the front end because I understand these are controversial topics. I understand that there is a considerable and the, and the most popular view in the church today is a view that we call pre-tribulation rapture or pre-tribulation removal of the church, okay? And then most of you probably grew up on that. I grew up on that. I know these are controversial issues. I know that some churches divide over these things. Some people get so emotionally charged over these things. Guys, I understand there's a lot at stake when it comes to talking and discussing these things. I will do my very best throughout this study to present to you the different views and the different sides, but I'm always going to let you know where I stand. And where I stand when it comes to the great tribulation is that not only are believers guaranteed to endure tribulation in general, which that is undisputable, but I do specifically believe that this book, this prophecy was written for the last generation, the last generation of believers. And last time I checked is that there's a time coming that Jesus and the apostles and the prophets spoke about. It's the time that is unequaled from any other time on the face of the earth. It will never be equaled again. It is the time that we call the great tribulation or the tribulation, the great one. And guys, I do believe, and I know you've heard me say this, and I'm, I'm going to share with you why I believe that we must endure the great tribulation. Now, again... If you don't believe that and you don't stand on that and you don't see that scripturally, that's okay. You have all, and I love you as a brother. Please hear me when I say that to you. But my perspective is this. John is writing to the church. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's writing to partners who are going to share in the tribulation. And the entire book of Revelation from basically chapter 6 through 19 describes to us what? The great tribulation. It is describing to us this time period, this unequaled, unprecedented time in human history that has not happened yet. That's about, the, the scriptures would tell us, three and a half years of unequaled distress and difficulty and catastrophe and persecution and tribulation. And so my perspective is this. John is writing this prophecy given to him by Jesus for the very last generation who must endure this time of great tribulation. I understand that this is not a popular view. But I'm not here to win a popularity contest. I'm here to share with you what I believe the scripture says and what the scripture teaches. And so when we begin, I'm going to show you some scriptures here in just a minute as to why I do believe that we will endure the great tribulation. Not just generally tribulation, but we will endure the great tribulation. But let me just, I'll give you one example. I was in a church one day. And a pastor was preaching about the pre-tribulation rapture. In, in other words, let me say it again. The pre-tribulation rapture teaches that the church is going to be removed off the earth, taken to heaven before all the bad stuff happens. And this was his comment. He was very emotionally charged about it. He said, there's no way you can convince me that God would let his bride get beat up like that during the worst time in human history. How could God let his precious bride get beat up and just trampled on for all this time of great tribulation? And man, I mean, he made a, an emphatic point. 
Like, why would God let his bride, like, I would never let my wife go through something like that. Why would God let his wife, his bride, the church, go through something like that and get beat on and trampled on? And then I, stood, I stepped back and I said, you know what? Well, then what about all the other believers like John and Peter and Paul? Didn't he let them get beat up pretty bad? Were they not his bride? What about all the persecution that's happened in church history? You ever read uh, Fox's Book of the Martyrs? Were, were they not his bride? He let them get beat up pretty bad. He let them suffer and die pretty bad. What about all the believers in Jesus today? Go, go find out what's happening right now in Nigeria. Go find out what's happening right now in North Korea. Go find out what's happening right now in the Middle East. Those are our brothers and sisters. Are they not the bride? Yeah, they're the bride. Is he letting them get beat up right now? Yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, they're dying in record numbers. And last time I checked, there's about 11 believers who are dying every hour on the face of the planet. So, so is there something wrong with them that he would let them get beat up for all this time, through all of human history, through all of the history of the church? He lets everybody else get beat up. He lets his bride get trampled on and go through intense persecution and imprisonment and suffering and even death. But for some reason, the last generation, he's not going to let her get beat up. Doesn't make any sense to me. Now, that's not, that's not the only reason that I believe that we're going to go through the great tribulation. But again, when we step back and think about these things, not just emotionally charged, but logically thinking, is that he's let every other generation go through in, in, intense persecution and suffering and tribulation, but for some reason, we get an exemption from that? Guys, it doesn't make sense. And so let me just share with you a couple of passages here that I believe help paint a picture as to why I do believe, not again, not just because Brother Marcus says it, but because of what the scripture says. While we will be here going through and enduring the great tribulation. And this does matter. Okay, it's not a salvation issue. You can believe otherwise and it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Please hear me say that. I, I'm, I'm fully 100% aware of that. But I think it matters in the event of preparation. It matters significantly. In other words, that if I know that a war is coming and I believe that they're going to come in and helicopter me out of there before the war hits, then I'm going to be a lot different in my preparation than if I know I have to what? go through the war, right? So there, there's a, there is a significant difference as to, as to why I do think this matters. And so listen to what Jesus said in, in the Olivet Discourse. Again, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for, for whose name? For Jesus' name. Well, see, I've heard people for years say, well, this isn't for the church, this is for the Jews. Last time I checked, brothers and sisters, the Jews don't believe in Jesus. Why are they going to be suffering for Jesus' namesake during the Great Tribulation? No, this is talking about who? Christians, people who are suffering for whose sake? The name of Jesus. Jesus is writing this to you and to me, and he's saying, listen, they're going to deliver you up. You're going to be hated for, by all nations for my name's sake. Christians, if you identify as a Christian, you're going to be hated. And then many will fall away and betray each other and hate each other. And many false prophets will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, man, are we there or what? And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the rapture will be saved. No, 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 wait, I, that's wrong. No, the one that endures to the, to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
You see, in the very same passage, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and it never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Guys, those are believers in Jesus Christ. Those who are chosen and have put their faith in Jesus Christ said, it's for their sake that I'm going to come and cut it short because otherwise no one would be able to survive. In Revelation 6, it says, I opened the fifth seal and under the altar were the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they're crying out, Lord, how true and how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then they were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Revelation 14, this is later on in the book of Revelation. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Who is that? It's believers. He says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Lord, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and for their deeds follow them. Guys, this is the repeated pattern in all of Scripture. And again, I, I'm, I could go on and on and on and on. This is Revelation 20. It says that we will be resurrected and we will reign with Christ, those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast. These are the people who are going through the tribulation and who refuse to deny Jesus. It costs them their very what? Life. Now, we'll get into more of that as we go. But I just wanted to kind of begin to lay a scriptural foundation as to why I do believe that we will be here and go through the great tribulation. And I'll say it to you this way, and I usually don't do this. But look, if I'm wrong, is there any law? Do I lose anything? I don't lose anything. If I'm wrong... But those who don't think we're going to be here, if you're wrong, what do you lose? You lose a lot. Because if you don't think you're going to be here and you find yourself in the middle of the worst time in human history, you're going to start to doubt who. God, why are you letting me go here? I wasn't supposed to be here. Which may just explain why many will what? Fall away during that time. Many will fall away when tribulation comes. Again, that's just my perspective. Now... Let's look at this vision of the vision of the Son of Man, and there's so much we're going to be able to unpack here. I'll do my best to get it done in a timely manner, but y'all stay with me. By the way, I'm just going to say this. If you need to leave, you can leave. If you need to get up and go to the restroom, by all means, go to the restroom. Um, I, I'm, not bound, I'm trying not to be bound by the clock. I try to be respectful of your time. Uh, I, I don't want to carry on too far because I know attention spans get, get bad and those kind of things, but... If we can sit in a football game for three hours and go to a movie for two hours, you can probably sit in here for a little bit longer. Amen? Amen. Okay. If you got to get up, it's okay. If you gotta, you're not distracting me. It's all right. I'm not, nobody's going to look at you funny, okay? But just stay with me as we, we get through this. So let's look at this vision of the Son of Man. Okay, this is fascinating. So what we see here is that John's vision reveals Jesus in all of his power, in his great glory, he is the son of man who's coming on the clouds. And so again, this is the reiteration of what we kind of looked at last week. Jesus, behold, every eye will see him. He's coming on the clouds and all the tribes of the earth will wail and mourn on account of him. And so what we see here is that John is given this vision and he turns and he sees Jesus. Now let's think about John and his relationship to Jesus. Remember, he walked with Jesus on earth. They're best friends. 
He had the deepest, most intimate relationship with him as a human, a brother, a friend, a friend can have. Then he even saw Jesus in his resurrected form. Because he, he was the witnesses for 40 days, Jesus spent time with the disciples after the resurrection. And so John was able to be with Jesus in his resurrected form. But guys, this was a little bit different. Now John is seeing him in all of his glory, in all of his power. So let's see what happens. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me, behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus to Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now there's a lot of conjecture about what does he mean by the Lord's day. A couple of different perspectives. I'll give you the top three. Number one, some people think this is Sunday um, because it was the day that Jesus was resurrected and the church, early church did meet specifically on Sunday for certain things, but I don't think they gave up the Sabbath either. I think they also kept the Sabbath holy and that's a whole other discussion for a whole other day. So it could be Sunday Probably not the Sabbath day because I think he just would have said Sabbath if it was the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. But here's one other possibility. This could be translated, he could be saying, I was in the spirit on the day of the Lord. That's one possible, that's one possible interpretation. In other words, what John is saying is, is that I was in the spirit and what Jesus saw, showed me in this vision was basically the what? The day of the Lord. So again, you can, you can chase that down if you want to. I don't think it's necessarily that relevant. But let's take a look at this vision. He says, then I turned to see. And, and notice, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but this is something that you need to understand. I do believe that the Lord is showing John this visual display. He sees this vision. He, he sees these things happening. And then he's told to write them down. And sometimes the Lord pushes pause on the video and he's like, hey, stop, I gotta, I gotta explain some things to you. And then he presses play again. And so it's this, this real visual vision is what he's, he's going through her. So, so he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw, he says, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And so we read that here. So let's talk about the vision of Jesus and let's talk about his attributes. He says, one like the Son of Man. This simply is an Old Testament expression that we find in the book of Ezekiel and Daniel and other places that basically is just saying, I saw one who had a human appearance. He was a man. Okay? And so God manifests himself in the form of a man. So let's look at this vision. First we see Jesus. He's dressed in a robe with a golden sash. I think that represents his... Purity. Next, we see Jesus, whose hair was like wool or snow. I think this represents his omniscience. What does God not know? Nothing. He has all wisdom because he knows what? Everything. Then we see that his eyes are like flaming fire. What does God not see? Nothing. See, God has eyes like flames of fire because he sees everything. It means he's omnipresent. Do you know there's nothing that you've ever said, thought, or done that God did not see? Amen. That we are laid bare before him to whom we must give an account. 
These are, these are the attributes of God. He has feet like burnished bronze. What does that mean? That is, simplify, that is signifying his judgment. These are the feet of the Lord. He's coming to tread. He's coming to stomp. He's coming to put his feet on the necks of his enemies, guys. The bronze, the burnished bronze is symbolic of judgment. Bronze being put through the fire, the, the fires of judgment. He is coming with his feet in burnished bronze because Jesus is coming to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. It's talking about his judgment. He has the voice like many waters. How many of you have ever been to Niagara? Got a few hands in the back. I've never been there. But as far as I understand that if you're there somewhere near the base or you're there around Niagara that is so loud that you can't even hardly hear yourself think because the waters are so powerful. That much water just falling over at one time. And so he, when he talks, his voice is like many waters. And so that signifies the power of God. Just in his voice is enough to lay us down like dead men. He's holding seven stars in his hand, which signifies his authority. He has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, which is his truth, because that obviously represents the word of God. And then what does it say? His face was like the sun at full strength. But John wasn't the first to see God in this glory and the vision. When Moses was taken up on the mountain of Sinai, he took the elders up there with him, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet. Again, he has feet, anthropomorphic form. God has human form. Under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. And then later, it says, the appearance of the glory of the Lord came as a devouring fire on top of the mountain. And then later, what does Moses say? He's saying, he asked the Lord, will you show me your what? Show me your glory. And the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But he said, I'll let you see my back. And so he put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and his glory passed before him. And he wasn't able to see him face to face in that sense, all along with his glory, because it would have killed him immediately. But as the Lord passed by, he was able to catch a glimpse of him and his back as he passed by him. Because he said, I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So Moses saw a vision of the Son of Man. Ezekiel said, above the expanse, over the heads, there was a likeness of a throne and appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness of, a hu- of human appearance. Again, this is the Lord. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. Very similar description. Ezekiel saw a vision of the Son of Man. He said, it was the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I did what? I fell on my face, just like John. Daniel sees an appearance of the glory of the Lord. He sees first the Ancient of Days. This is the Father. So this is what's fascinating about the Scripture. The Father is given to us in Daniel 7 in anthropomorphic form. In other words, the Father has a human appearance in Daniel 7. This was the Ancient of Days. He had clothing and uh, was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool, and he had fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire. So this is the Father. And then he says, And then I saw with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So these are obviously two different People, these are two different personalities, and yet they're both God. And it says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so the father has this appearance that Daniel was able to see sitting on his throne. And the son, obviously, has the very same appearance. 
In Daniel 10, he sees another vision, a man in his belt with fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like gleamed of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Has to be the same person. Almost an identical description of what John gives us in this vision. And then, of course, John sees Jesus during his earthly ministry as he took James and Peter up on the mountain of transfiguration. Look at what it says. And then Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like what? Like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And of course, again, they fell down before him in worship. And so you see that these visions of the Lord are not, un, uh, not uncommon in the scriptures. And John is seeing Jesus in the fullness of his glory. And look at how he responds. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though what? As though dead. So guys, it just is a reminder of the glory and the holiness of God is that we are presumptuous to think that we would ever be able to stand in his presence if it didn't overwhelm us completely and make us as Isaiah said it this way, look at what Isaiah says. He came to the one in, uh, in, the, in the Lord sitting on a throne, and he saw these seraphim, and he, they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And how does Isaiah respond? Woe is me, for I am, I'm done. I, I'm not making this. I cannot get through this. I am ruined. I, I'm going to disintegrate right now in front of the glory of the Lord. That's how almost every single individual responds when they actually have an encounter with the pure glory of God. Now, Jesus also says that he has the keys to death and Hades. So only Jesus holds the keys to death and life. Only Jesus holds the keys to death and life. So John sees this vision, and thankfully in his mercy and his grace, Jesus touches him by his right hand, and he, and he says, it's okay, it's me, it's, the, it's Jesus. I'm the one who died, and I'm alive forevermore. And he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. What does this mean? This is very, very important. The Bible talks about Hades as being the, the, the abode of the dead. When you die from, a, from a, a Hebrew perspective, you went to this holding place, this place called Hades. It's the place of the dead. And... The scriptures are full of references to Sheol, which is the, the Hebrew term for Hades. It's the Greek term. He says the Lord brings, kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Uh, Matthew 16, what did Jesus say? I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades. That's the word, hell. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Talking here in the, uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 6 when he's talking about the riders on the fourth horseman. He says its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. So these are, these are expressions of death and Hades. Now there's a lot of uh, interesting things you could get into about are, is death and Hades just uh, a symbolic expression or are these in spiritual entities? And it says death is riding this horse, and Hades is following after him. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting things I'm not going to spend time to get, in here, get into here, but ultimately what we do know is that both death and Hades will be thrown into the what? Lake of fire in the end, and there will be no more death. There will be no more death. But what's more important about this is the authority that we have been given in Christ. He has the keys to death and life. 
And he has given that authority to us. And so Jesus said, therefore, I send you. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Guys, I'm with you to the end of the age. That's what Jesus says. Here in John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, yet he, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall what? Shall never die. Here's all I'm going to say about that. If I'm going to put my hope in eternal life, I'm going to put my hope in the only one who has ever conquered the grave. Now, I could ask a million people, do you want to live forever? And a million people are going to say what? Absolutely. How do I know that? Because God's placed eternity where? In the hearts of mankind. We all know that we're created to live forever. Well, there's only one way we're going to live forever, and that's if we put our faith and our trust in the only one who has proven that he has the power over what? Over death. That if you believe in him, even if you die, you will live. And if you believe in him, you will live and never die. That's the hope and the promise that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has the keys to death and to Hades, and he is our only hope to overcome the grave. The grave is calling our name. Death is certain. It is appointed for every man to die, once to die, and then comes the judgment. If you're going to make it, guys, it's only going to be putting your faith in this Jesus. Then, of course, we see that we touched on this a few weeks ago, that, that uh, the Lord gives John kind of the basic outline of the book. Um, I'm not going to get into that very much right now. And then at the end of this, of the, of this chapter, it's pretty, it's pretty good as we wrap up here. I like this because not only does the Lord give us some, some mysterious language about these lampstands and these stars, but here's something I want to show you today that, that's going to be very helpful for you in your study. He not only shows us what these symbols are, but he tells us what they mean. And most of the time, if you're reading the book of Revelation, you don't have to be afraid because he's going to tell you some things that maybe don't make sense initially, or he's going to use symbols and this, this, this mysterious language. But then a lot of times he goes, goes ahead and tells you exactly what it means. And that's what he does right here as he says, the seven stars are the seven angels, and the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. And so the Lord, as John turns, he says that he was in the middle, in the midst of the seven lampstands, okay, and he had the seven stars in his right hand, okay? So real quickly, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Lord, for telling us what this means. So he doesn't leave us confused. So the seven golden lampstands, that's a picture of a menorah. How many lamps does a menorah have? Seven. There are seven of these that John saw. Again, this is language that represents the temple and the tabernacle. But this is what John saw when he turned, and Jesus is in the midst of these seven churches. The seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers of those churches. Now, there's two interpretations about what are the seven angels. The first interpretation is that these are just human pastors. These are the messengers, the men or the pastors who are leading these churches. And that word messenger, uh, agalos in the Greek, can be used for a human messenger, but it's very, very rare. Very rare. Almost 99% of the time when this word agalos is used in the Greek, it is always used for an angel, a spiritual being. So you say, well, does that mean that all these seven churches had a, an, a protecting angel over them? I think so. We know, did you know that there are true guardian angels over individuals? The Bible does teach that. 
There are, the Bible in Hebrews 2 says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That we are definitely being guarded and protected and watched over by these spiritual beings as there's a whole other battle going on around us that we can't see with our physical eyes. There's the spiritual war that's going on around us. God gives us these angelic messengers to protect and serve us in the ways that he so chooses. I think he also does that for every local church, which means Christ Church has a what? Probably has a protecting guardian angel over us. And what he's doing is, I have no idea, but God is sending him to protect and to serve and to minister to us in ways that we may or may not ever understand. So stars, many times, most of the time, are referred to as angelic being. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun, moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. And so I could go on and on and on about these stars. So I'm going to ask our praise team to come up. And here's, here's what, I know this message was more informative, but it is very practical in, in the same way. Because, again, I'm just trying to go ahead and put my front foot out there, guys, to let you know the perspective from which I will be teaching this book. And I will show alternative views. Please believe me. And I'll explain to you why I believe what I believe. But here's the reality, is that the, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The time is near. Do you feel it? And it's not about what we feel, but you don't have to look very far to see what's happening in the world around us to just really begin to understand that it, it, just, it, it is here, guys. It's, it's, it's moving in such a fast and rapid uh, rate that the coming of the Lord is so very near, and we had better be ready. We better be prepared for what is coming, and I would be a terrible leader and I will be a terrible pastor if I did not help my people get prepared for what is coming face of the earth I would not be a good shepherd if I didn't at least get you prepared or at least thinking about getting prepared for what's coming so how do we put this into action how do we how do we apply this to our life here's your practical application for today I think we need to prepare for coming tribulation now that doesn't mean necessarily the great tribulation immediately, but all I know is what I see here in America, the days of us being able to live complacent and apathetic and comfortable lives as Christians in America, guys, that's probably gone. That's probably over. The line has been drawn in the sand. The church is being further and further marginalized to the, to the, to the uh, side of, of society, and we're being identified, and people are going to pay attention, and it's going to cost you something to become a believer. To be a believer, it's going to cost you something to stand for Jesus Christ in an increasingly difficult world where we're being censored and persecuted. So we need to prepare for the coming tribulation. How do we do that? We need to get our eyes off of all this mess. We need to take our eyes off of all this chaos. And we need to put it and fix our eyes on who? On Jesus. Amen. That's the only way I know how to get through it, guys. When everything around us is just making no sense and it's confusing and it's chaotic and it's, and it's discouraging, we, we lift up our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We set our hearts on Jesus and we set our hearts on his coming. And here's the good news. Jesus has been given all authority. Remember, he holds the seven churches. He holds the seven angels in his what? In his hand. That means he has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
So if Jesus has all authority, he has given his people, his followers, that very same what? Authority. So we now have the right and the privilege and the responsibility to go in that very same authority to fulfill the great commission, which is to spread the gospel to, all, to the ends of the earth until he comes. That our, listen, no matter what happens in the United States of America, guys, in the next year, 10 years, our job and our mission does not change. Amen. Take comfort in that. Our job doesn't change. And so that's what I'm talking about. And we continue to go in his authority and we continue to be his witnesses until the very what? Now, what does it mean as we close? What does it mean that he who endures to the end will be saved? Does that mean you got to prove that you're going to make it all the way to the end before you know that you're going to be saved? That's not what that means. That would be a works-based salvation. What this means is, is that those who are truly saved will endure to the what? Now, what is the end? One of two things. It's either the end of your life on this earth or it's the end of this age. My guess and my prediction is that the overwhelming majority of Christians will not live to the end of the age. That the overwhelming majority of believers who stand for Jesus Christ are going to come to the end of their life on this earth before they see the coming of the Lord Jesus coming on the clouds. Amen. So to me, I would love to know that I'm here to witness from this side of heaven that the sky being rolled up like a scroll and Jesus coming on the clouds in all power and great glory. I want to see it from this perspective. But guys, either way, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're going to what? We're going to see it. So it's either going to be from that perspective or this perspective. Either way, we're going to see it. And so that's what it means. He who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, if it costs you your life, that's the end. If you make it all the way to his coming, that's the end. But either way, those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ, we will be kept by him to the very what? To the very end. Amen. Find comfort in that. And so... What I like to do is that when we touch on difficult topics like this, we need to go back to the love of God that is ours. As we shared last week, there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from what? From the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Nothing means what? Nothing. There's nothing, no angel, no height, depth. You know Romans 8. So we're going to sing right now how deep the Father's love for us. And we stand and we rest in that. Amen. Let's pray together as you stand. Father, your love is, is unsearchable. It's unconditional. It's, it's, it's everlasting. And you have proven that as you gave your son to lay his life down in the greatest act and demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. And we stand in that love today and help us to be so grateful that you keep us in your hand, that you, that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love. And so, Lord, as we sing this today, knowing that there is difficult times ahead and that we are going to enter possibly into the most difficult time the world has ever seen, it is going to be your love that gets us through. It's going to be your truth that holds us and keeps us. And that's my prayer for these people, Lord these dear people, our church, your people, 
And I pray all this in Jesus' name. All God's people said. If you're here today and you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, today's the day. I'll be here. You come.